With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Hello everyone, I'm Dashaun Farad. Let's build. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Let's Build. I'm Dashan Farad. Tonight we have with us Zaid Mohammed, who is the press officer of the Malcolm X Commemoration Committee. We're going to be discussing the plight of Mumia Abu-Jamal. Brother Zaid Mohammed is going to give us an update. Last week, uh, Mr. Abu-Jamal was admitted into a prison hospital uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, he had slipped into a diabetic coma. He had come out of the coma, but while he was in the coma, Many supporters were outraged that his family was not allowed to see him, but eventually, due to pressure from supporters across the country and the world, his family, his immediate family, uh, his wife in particular, was finally granted access. There have been several rallies, there have been several uh, events taking place demanding that Mumia Abu-Jamal receive proper medical care. He was released from the hospital, then he was readmitted into the same hospital, all this taking place last week. For those of you who aren't aware, of Mumia Abu-Jamal. He is the imprisoned journalist who was convicted in 1982 of killing Philadelphia police officer Daniel Faulkner. Uh, he was sentenced to death shortly after, and since that time, his case has uh, been the most popular among what many have referred to as the political prisoners. Uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal was a member of the Black Panther Party as a youth, as well as the MOVE organization, uh, which had been bombed in May of 1985, uh, it was a very uh, tragic event, and they'll be celebrating the 30th anniversary of that this coming May. But tonight, once again, we have with us uh, Zaid Mohammed to discuss Mr. Mumia Abu-Jamal's plight. Zaid, welcome to the show. Can you hear me okay? Well, all power to the people is on the move, and free Mumia and free Maul. Well, uh, what I forgot to tell members of our listening audience, uh, Zaid Mohammed is actually one of the most uh, popular voices regarding the Free Mumia Abu-Jamal campaign in the country and in the world. Okay, uh, Zaid has been doing this for quite some time. Zaid, what we want to know is, uh, can you please give us an update concerning Mr. Abu-Jamal? Well, there's a long view and there's a short view, but let me just put it in the, in the, in the, in the words that Pam Africa put, it, put us in. This is the most dangerous situation that we've had around Mumia since he has been in prison. I'm going to say it again. This is the most dangerous situation 
that we've had with Mubia since we, he has been in prison. I mean, even more dangerous than when we had two signed death warrants on him back in 1995 and 1999. One thing I want everybody to appreciate about this incredible human being who we love and who we cherish is that even under the most difficult and dangerous circumstances with his case, he has never been incapacitated. He has never been physically at risk the way he is at risk now. And, and, and from the looks uh, of, of everything, he is very seriously ill, and they're very seriously uh, doing everything they can to, to ensure that he does not recover uh, or, or not even survive what he's facing. This is a very, very, very serious situation with our beloved freedom fighter. Now, uh, for those of you who are just now tuning in or who are tuned in from the beginning of this broadcast, I forgot to mention that uh, scheduled to join us along with Zaid is uh, actually the most vocal supporter of Mumia Abu-Jamal, Miss Pam Africa, who uh, has been working on Mumia's case along with others for, for over 30 years. But today, uh, she couldn't make it to our broadcast. Uh, we want to uh, send our best regards to Miss Africa. Okay, now, Zaid, we are... We understand that you weren't. We understand that you weren't on the ground. In uh, I'm sorry, it escapes me right now. Where the where the prison is, where the hospital is located. What 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 part of Pennsylvania is that in? Uh, uh, he he is back at, at Mahoney, which is in Crackville. He's back at the prison that he was sent to once his death sentence was vacated a couple of years ago. He should be in a facility that specializes with dealing with people who are at the at this kind of stage of uh, 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 diabetic. Uh, you know, that's where he should be. He was originally taken to Short Hill, and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Medical Center in Pottsville, Pennsylvania, uh, but he needs to be in a hospital, not in a uh, uh, infirmary uh, in a prison where he's being misfed. Uh, and mismedicated, and he was already dangerously misdiagnosed. Now, have you been? Have that you been? Also, there was a, everybody was at the prison today. April sixth was a, it was an international call-in day on the prison, and uh, there was a rally at the prison, uh, and, and some of them got to see Lumia, uh and, and to you know continue to fight for his family's rights to see him on a regular basis and to have control. Uh, of his treatment, they are in, they are all in the, uh, in the process of coming back. There's going to be a major press conference in Philadelphia tomorrow at the uh, Attorney General uh, the Attorney General's office, uh, the DA's office. I'm sorry, uh, Seth Williams' office tomorrow at 11 a.m. to bring all of this together. Uh, this coming Friday, uh, the 10th is going to be an International Day of Solidarity for Mayor. There'll be rallies all over the world. Uh, on that day, uh, I'm, I'm trying to push for something in Milk on the following day to be sure. Uh, so I'm so there, and everybody's trying to reposition themselves to continue to take this fight to the stage where it needs to go to. Okay, now this is the concern of Zaid that many people have. Now you've been working on this case for quite some time. What we would like to know is, many have said that that there's evidence to prove that Mr. Abu Jamal did not kill Officer Faulkner. All right. If that be the case, if there's tremendous evidence that can prove that proves his innocence or may prove his innocence, why then won't the legal system or the courts grant him a new trial? 
Of course, that's the question of the century, and it's one of the core demands that are now also in this particular current thrust in what we now call the Bring Me a Home campaign. It is clear to the entire international community, to, 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 to most civil-minded legal authorities, uh, that, that Mumia should have been free years ago. That, that, just on the, the, the obscene technical violations of his case from the judge literally saying uh, uh, that he hopes they help fry the, the N-word uh, and uh, we will make sure that he dies on down to uh, arresting uh, uh, witnesses that have, have supported Mumia. There's so many dimensions to this case. Mumia should have been freed in the interest of justice a long time ago. But one of the things I'll, I'll mention, I mean, one of the important theories about who actually did this is this. Uh, May 13th is significant, of course, because you indicated in your introduction uh, to the bombing of the Moon family, uh, a horrific event on Friday, May 13th, 1985, known by many as the Osage Avenue Massacre, where black community was literally bombed to to, to, to take out a, a demonized uh, black family, that being the Moo family. And in that bombing, the leader, John Africa, was killed, as well as almost a dozen other men, women, and children were senselessly killed. And an entire neighborhood was destroyed. And that community is still trying to recover from the savagery and the trauma of such an incredible deed. Underneath that, let's go back for a moment, back to your original question, to December 9th, 1981. So the 9th, 1981 is the evening in which when he was shot and nearly killed himself uh, on the scene where Faulkner, uh, where Officer Daniel Faulkner was, was, was uh, killed shortly before that. The evidence that has, we have since uh, reconstructed and, and have put out to the international community for several years now has made it clear that uh, not only was Mumia innocent, he was not even on the scene when Faulkner was killed. Uh, that Faulkner had in his possession, in his hand, the identity of the person who ultimately shot him and took his life. We would learn, later learn on that, the, that the identification he had in his hand was the identification of one Kenneth Freeman. Uh, someone who had been on the streets for some time and who was in that car with, with one of Mumia's brothers when this particular incident took place. It's also clear that Mumia, when he got to the scene, was shot on the scene by some other Philadelphia police officer. It's also clear that on May 13th, aside from all the madness that went with the bombing of Move, that the body of one Ken Freeman was found killed execution style under circumstances that have yet to even be investigated and it's our contention that he was probably killed by some underground elements within the Philadelphia police to, 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 to take care of both matters that the Philadelphia police were obsessed with in terms of, of uh, Mumia's case and in terms of uh, the MOVE organization, the MOVE family uh, since they were willing to go so savagely far in trying to take that family out with that bombing. So that's the background, and there's, there's, there's more evidence, we can, we can go on that for days, but that's the, that's the core background to the innocence of Mumia Abu-Jamal, and to, to why it's so critical at this particular uh, point in time now, to see to it that we secure not just his well-being in terms of his health, but it's time to bring this innocent freedom fighter home. It's time to get him out. Now... Zaid, how would you respond to many individuals, okay, oftentimes among many activists, we hear of the theory of America having political prisoners. And, of course, most Americans will say that since we're the home of democracy, 
We don't have any political prisoners. How would you respond to that? It's one of the most one of the most obscene lies, obscene white lies that the United States government has been telling for the last fifty years. Uh, and and there's, there are dozens of political prisoners in this country. Of course, you know you, um, you know my ties to the Black Panther Party, and, and, and you served with me in the new Black Panther Party. We, we know very well firsthand who our freedom fighters are and how that took place. Let us understand that the United States, at, at every turn in its modern development, has targeted critical and important black organizers and black dissenters for criminalization. We go back to Marcus Mosiah Garvey, our first political prisoner, criminalized because of the success that he was having in building the incredible mass movement that he created with the Universal Negro Improvement Association in the late 19-teens and in the, in the early 1920s. Uh, a success that has yet to be matched, I would say, in my modest art, or my modest judgment, by any organizing efforts of any particular one organization since then. Jim Garvey's impact was phenomenal, and, and he was criminalized on some bogus charges of mail fraud to, to get him off of the streets and to get him ultimately out of the country where he was deported. Shortly after that, uh, the United States was embroiled with trying to repress the independence movement in Puerto Rico. And, 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 and they put into prison one Don Pedro Isa Campos, the, the father of Puerto Rican independence in the modern 20th century, uh, and, and would later jail others. But in Albizu was, was is, is the first political prisoner that we know in the modern setting here in the United States that was savagely tortured for his political beliefs. Uh, was subjected to radiation poisoning and, and other vicious medical attacks, uh, and they released him shortly before his death so they could say they had nothing to do with it. Albizu, who was a legend amongst, uh, our people from Puerto Rico, uh, like the late Dr. Joseph Ben Johannes will tell you, uh, was an important political prisoner and, 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 and the beginning of that tradition of repression that the United States has always had for our movement. We jump, we, we somersault ahead to the black liberation movement period. Cohen Telpro, a savage, uh, covert action designed to take out, uh, all facts, all meaningful assets of, uh, of our movement, including, uh, Martin Luther King and, and, and you know, it, and including Malcolm X and, and including the Black Panther Party. Uh, and they each, and with each turn of, of, of the neutralization of one of these great leaders of organizations, the intensification against the movement through repression would, would, would pick up. There was no letdown, there was a picking up. When Malcolm was killed, uh, the focus was squarely on Martin and, 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 and the emergence of young, young people changing the character of the movement as they began to move away from the limitations of nonviolence. And when, of course, when Martin was killed, the Black Panther Party grew exponentially because that was the death of nonviolence when they made the mistake of killing Martin Luther King. And when the party so grew up, but you're saying, we're going to a commercial break right now. We'll be right back right okay. after this. All right. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dashan Parad, and you're listening to Let's Build. We have with us activist and author Zaid Mohammed, 
uh, Baba Zahid Muhammad, rather, uh, who's giving us an update on Mumia Abu Jamal. Uh, Zahid, you were speaking about the counterintelligence program, uh, which you say targeted many uh, black leaders. So you're saying that, and perhaps you said this earlier, and pardon me if I seem redundant, are you saying that you believe that Mumia's fight, or Mr. Abu Jamal's fight, rather, is part of a broader conspiracy? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, what they will do, what they have been doing for years to prevent, uh, one of the, uh, you know, core objectives of the, of the counterintelligence program, uh, uh, operation to prevent the rise of a black messiah. Now, no one aspires to such a position because we understand the baggage that comes with that and the limitations that come with that from an organization, from an organizing vantage point. But from the state's vantage point, from the, uh, vantage point of the empire, anybody who can be a galvanizing force uh, of a serious time, uh, certainly who has a revolutionary orientation, is deemed a threat, a threat worthy of neutralization. And, and even though Mumia has been, you know, confined to death row most of his years in prison, even though he's, he is, he is, uh, very dangerously ill right now, uh, the, his, his eloquence, uh, his continued, uh, uh, practicing of, of, of revolutionary journalism, uh, the fact that he has, does indeed have a global audience, uh, is, is something that has been driving the authorities absolutely crazy. And when, and then here's, just to bring this back to exactly where we are now, uh, when they failed to secure his, uh, his death through execution, uh, through the death penalty and, and, and through a, a, a legal or an orchestrated legal execution which is they lost him on death row now they revert to the, the an even more sinister method of trying to med- to kill him through medical neglect not only do we have political prisoners in this country but we have lost several to the injustice of, of medical negligence uh, the late uh, Albert Newell Washington Shake Newell from New York Free uh, some years ago, Merle Africa from from the move nine herself, and and, uh, and just a few weeks ago, this is how critical this is. Phil Africa, where we would lose Phil Africa, and just in January, January 10th, under circumstances that are frighteningly paralleling to what we're facing with Mumia Abu Jamal. I can add also Teddy Jahif, uh, uh, the late Bashir Hamid, who was a personal. Uh, 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 personal inspiration to me uh, as I'm, I'm, was the, I was the best friend of one of his nephews I grew up under Bashir's influence uh, and, 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 and several others this is you know when our freedom fighters are, are in captivity there's no place that's more dangerous to them than being in captivity and when you become ill in captivity it is absolutely dangerous so the, the global mobilization that has been putting pressure on the state of the Pennsylvania and pressure on the state of Pennsylvania's prison system has, has bore some modest results uh, at this particular juncture in, in, in saving Mumia and, and helping his family get the kind of support that they need but he is still very seriously Ill, and he, and, and this is, and this is, circumstances. tell me, have any, have any of you, have any of Mr. Abu Jamal's supporters reached out to the widow of Officer Faulkner at all to, because she's convinced that he's guilty, that he murdered her husband, despite the potential evidence that will prove otherwise. Have any of you asked to sit down with her to try to clear the air? I don't know of any such efforts. 
I doubt very seriously that they would be welcome. Uh, I shouldn't. I want to make it clear. I want to make it very plain that there is no, you know, so, uh, alleged that the evidence is there. It's just that there's been no court willing to, to hear it. The evidence is there. You know, we just need we need a judge with some testicular fortitude to see to get the evidence on the legal record. Um, um, Marine Falmer tragically. This, this is this is the other background to the, to this particular moment in time too. Uh, the state of Pennsylvania recently enacted what's known as the um, uh, Revictimization Act. Uh, it's a law that uh, taught me, especially, not the first one either, uh, that targets Lemire's right to, to, to free speech uh, by saying that any, any family members who are feel victimized by the speaking out or the access to, or having access to the public of, of, of a prisoner associated with their family's initial victimization has a right to have that person silenced, have that person's right to, to have access to free speech, to have access to public record, to have access to public media, to have access to be heard in any public forum uh, can be abridged. And, and that is uh, going through the courts now. And that was gaining steam, and, and we were ready to beat back that particular effort through the courts. So it's, it's incredibly ironic that at, at this time, such an, all these developments are taking place, Lemire is, is suddenly faced with some, uh, a medical diagnosis that puts him uh, literally steps away from death's door. We find now, that incredibly he, ironic. Now, now, if you would, uh, briefly, as we have just a few remaining uh, minutes in this segment, uh, as I've read up on this case, uh, there were, I've read on the part of many, I've heard many, excuse me, I've read up on this case, and many Mamiya Abu Jamal supporters speak about some alleged uh, tampering during his trial. Uh, would you care to speak on that? Witness tampering, juror tampering, if well, I read it correctly? Well, well, that's, well, that's going back. To be sure, um, several witnesses were coerced in changing their original uh, eyewitness testimony uh, in order to secure uh, convictions, the most dramatic of which was Veronica Jones. Uh, Veronica Jones was, um, let's let's with the background. Uh, Officer Faulkner was killed on Locust and 13th Street uh, in Philadelphia. It's considered a red light district just outside of the downtown, the glare of downtown Philadelphia, where, where you know those kind of things that you associate with the red light district take place. Veronica was quote working the area, and 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 in her testimony, she said she saw someone running from the scene after hitting Faulkner, uh, and described that person. Uh, when she was taken into custody, she was told that if she did not give the prosecutor what they wanted in terms of. Uh, how they saw uh, that night going down and, and fingering Mamiya that she would be put in the prison. Uh, several other witnesses have received similar kinds of threats. If they had uh, outstanding legal issues, those legal issues would be used against them in succeeding actions if they did not change their original testimony that would exonerate Mumia just by virtue of what they what, what they witnessed. When we had we rallied against the first death sentence back in nineteen ninety five, credible as it seems, but but you know, the state of Pennsylvania is very much an up south state. Um, the courts threw the case 
back to the state court, but not only did they throw it back to the state court, they threw it back to the very judge who presided over Mumia's uh, uh, conviction in sentencing. He was none other than the late Albert Sable. Sable oversaw more death penalty cases and sent more people to death uh, than any judge during his time, and they were overwhelmingly uh, black and brown people sent to death. And his hostility towards Mumia and towards his lawyer, towards his case, towards his identity was 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 a part is a very much a part of his very racist and backwards of South uh, legend. When Veronica was brought into court to testify how she had to change her testimony and that she wanted to change her testimony because she in no way wanted to be a part of Mumia going to his death when she knew he was innocent based on what she saw. She was literally arrested on the stand for some uh, check warrant, some, some check writing activity that was under investigation in Camden, New Jersey. And, and to her credit, she literally looked at the judge, looked at, at the, at the uh, prosecutors, and looked at the entire courtroom, then looked back at the judge and said, is that all you got? Is that all you got to keep me from telling the truth? And they, they literally arrested her right on the stand trying to discredit what she was trying to say by discrediting her as a human being or as a credible witness. So there's been a, a lot of those kinds of things all throughout that part of, the, of, of Mumia's ordeal as well. I guess now the, the question that so many people would care to know is, what next? Well, today was, it was an international call-in day to the uh, state of Pennsylvania on several fronts. And, and we still want people to continue uh, to do that. Because, and here's the first, let's, let's, let's go over, I'm trying to pull them up because I want to be right and exact. These are the six core demands uh, that we're talking about right now for Mumia One, to allow daily visits by Mumia's families, friends, and attorneys. Uh, their support and protection at this time of vulnerability should not be restricted. And this has implications, of course, for anybody in a similar circumstance. You know, you, you remember that time we just had a similar circumstance with uh, Imam Jamil Alameen, former H.R. Brown. Uh, and and it's, it's the kind of pressure that we're applying to the prison system now for Mumia, the same kind of same with Imam Jamil's life just a little while ago. So that's that's one. That's demand number one. Demand number two: allow Mumia's choice of specialist doctors to examine and schedule treatment for him now. Either the prison staff at the prison, uh, North Medical Center has a diabetes specialist. Is that which is absolutely and, there, and there's a pressure for this in Pennsylvania. And check this out. The precedent for, for this particular man being realized is a prison by the name of John E. DuPont. Now, if you recognize the DuPont name, yes. This, this young, same John D. DuPont was an heir to the DuPont Chemical Fortune. And he was allowed care by private doctors during his, his imprisonment. What's good for the, the, the uh, 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 white boy who's, who's, who's the son of, of privileged wealth is a we want the same justice for Mumia. Number three, release of Mumia's medical records to his attorneys because there's a need for an investigation as to how his case was medically mishandled in the first place. Four, and this is, has broader implications for the struggle against mass incarceration, release Mumia from prison and all elderly prisoners at the age of 55 and, and, and older. Mumia will be 61, God willing, on April 24th. 
number five, allow full investigation of the prison health care in the state of Pennsylvania. This is the role where the feds need to actually come in and help uh, change the uh, change the game on that. And finally, back to your original questions, Ramirez innocent should have never been incarcerated in the first place, and we demand his release in the interest of justice. Now, over the next several days, uh, we want people to continue to call and put pressure on uh, the state in several ways. Number one, the, the uh, telephone number to the uh, Department of Corrections Secretary John Wetzel. Wetzel is spelled W-E-T-V is in zebra E-L. That phone number is 717-728-4109. 717-728-4109. His email is C-R-P is in Paul, A. D-O-C secretary at PA.gov that's C-R-P-A-D-O-C secretary at PA.gov and then of course is the governor of Pennsylvania himself the one who actually uh, initiated this, this new law to try and shoot me from being heard uh, Governor Tom Wolf his number is 717-772-5000 and his fax number once in two statements, the 717-772-8284. And his email is governor at pa.gov. Is it static in the background? Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Go ahead. Go ahead. And then finally, uh, the superintendent of the prison that we is at, John Carestis, 570-773-2158, 570 Seven seven three two one five eight, and his email is contact.doc at pa.gov. So that's where we're at right now. Um, anybody listening to this that belongs to the, that has an organization that can pull off uh, a rally this weekend in, in support of Omir, we would appreciate that. I just an alert out to some of my allies and, and comrades in, in, in this area to see if we can do something either Friday or Saturday. But Friday, April 10th, is a call for a, a shutdown. Okay. okay, thank you very much, Zayed Muhammad, for joining us. And we'll be back on the second segment with our meeting authority and Carlos Muhammad to discuss the African-American Muslim history. Let's build. Stay with us. Welcome, everyone, to the second segment of Let's Build. On this segment, we're going to be speaking with uh, author and lecturer Amin Nathari, as well as the National Archivist of the Nation of Islam student, Minister Carlos Muhammad, concerning African-American Muslim history. And then, towards the end of the segment, we're going to discuss an event that's scheduled to take place regarding the subject. Amin Muhammad, are you there? 
I'm here, brother. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam of student minister Carlos Muhammad. Are you there? Okay, I guess you haven't called in yet. Okay, what's about me? Uh, first of all, sir, welcome to the show again. You know, we had you on our premiere. Uh, we're glad to have you back. The last segment was very interesting. But before we get into this subject, I wanted to shout out a special, I wanted to shout out Grandmaster from New Jersey, Us. You know, he's listening. I'm not going to mention who his name is, but thank you for tuning in. He knows who he is, my friend and brother. Okay, uh, first of all, uh, I mean, you know, you you have lectured extensively for years, and you've written about for years African-American Muslim history. Now, we've heard about, many of us have heard about the Moors, the African Moors contributing to Islam in Europe and in Northern Africa. But what contribution did African-Americans make to Islam? Uh, first of all, again, thank you, Brother Deshaun, for having me. It's always a pleasure being on the show. Um, I would have to... Uh, asked rhetorically, what contributions haven't African Americans or Black Americans made to Islam? Because uh, particularly, as we understand, popularizing Islam in America, that was certainly um, on. That was certainly a contribution that was made by uh, the African American Muslim. Now, I'm saying that to say that we know that um, prior to the nation of Islam, yeah, there was some um, some presence of Islam in America among Black people. But it wasn't involved. It wasn't uh, intertwined in the mainstream culture, and nobody brought Islam to our people until the work of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad began. And even in the Black community as we know it, it wasn't until you know the work of Malcolm X, and then then Muhammad Ali so boldly proclaiming that he wasn't going to be cast as clay anymore. He was going to be Muhammad Ali. It's those type of events that cultivated Islam in Black America, and in America in and of itself to the forefront and has such an impact on the culture of our community that even uh, the names and the derivatives of names that we even find today, all of these names were derivatives from uh, things taken from Islamic culture that Islam had impacted. So we made, again, and we've made and have continued to make uh, a great contribution to the presence of Islam in America. Now, uh, I mean, uh, I'm sure that you've heard this uh, many times, of course, uh, there are many Muslims who, as you and I know, who are straight, anti-Nation of Islam, anti-Wadabi Muhammad, uh, anti-Noble Drew Ali, uh, anything specifically that is connected to the Nation of Islam and to the Moorish Science Temple. How would you respond to critics who say that when uh, discussing uh, the development of Islam in America, you should not reference the work of Elijah Muhammad or Noble Drew Ali because, as they say, that was not, quote, true Islam. How would you respond to that? I will respond the way that I've uh, always tried to respond, particularly over the past 15 years, and I'm going to be uh, dishonest in all honesty, uh, having grown up in the nation of Islam and then being part of the transition that began in 1975 under W.D. Muhammad. There was a time in my life where I didn't want to reference or directly connect myself to a lot of things in the nation of Islam, and part of that was out of our struggle and out of many of our sincere intent to just focus on what we understood to be uh, the clear theological aspect of Islam. But in hindsight and in retrospect, we have to answer that question that you asked, brother, by saying that there's no way that you can have an honest conversation about Islam in America and not reference the work of Noble Duali and certainly the work of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. 
and it would be disingenuous to try to just rewrite the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, particularly his book, out of history and act as if it didn't exist because uh, even if you weren't a member of the nation of Islam, and I have this conversation all the time with many Muslims who say that they didn't come to the nation, but they were influenced by Malcolm and they were influenced by the Black Panther Party and all these other groups. That's all well and good. But there would be no Malcolm without the work of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And I would venture to say there would be no Black Panther Party without the work of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad in making, you know, the the expression of black power to be something more than a, a jingle and a slogan. Because you look at the work of the Black Panther Party, they referenced a lot of the things that the Nation of Islam did. So for that person that will call themselves, you know, uh, a traditional uh, Sunni Muslim, and we all are outside ourselves to be Sunni Muslims, it only means that you follow the Quran and the Sunnah or the, the prophetic tradition of the Prophet Muhammad. We can't, you know, we can't disconnect from the work of the Honorable Muhammad because it sets the framework for what we're still continuing to build upon today. Now, you know, what's funny, uh, I don't want to say it's funny, uh, I think that it's significant, you mentioning uh, the work of Elijah Muhammad, because I heard one of his sons uh, once say, the late Jabba Muhammad, say that when he toured the Middle East and Africa and even made Hajj with his father in 1959, he said that the people over there, uh, he didn't mention which African country, had begged Elijah Muhammad, uh, you know, sir, if you stay here, we'll build you a palace if you will stay here and come teach us. So it's, a, it's it amazing how... It was Egypt. It was Egypt was the country, and it was then President Nasser that asked the Ambulaj Muhammad to stay. And the Ambulaj Muhammad loved his people so much and loved the work that he was doing that he felt it was important that he had to stay. This was something I remember reading as a child in Muhammad Speaks newspaper because this was widely publicized. And that goes to show something that uh, the impact of the nation, you know, you, can, you couldn't overestimate it. It was so powerful. And then to go back to the early plus and early in terms of the importance of the impact of that work, the Ambulaj Muhammad in Nation of Islam gave specificity to Islam, meaning made it relevant. You know, prior to his work, nobody was really interested in giving Islam to the black man and the black woman of America. So the work that he did uh, primarily in terms of, you know, redeeming our people, and as we used to say, continue to say, giving our people the knowledge itself, this was the foundation that needed to be done before we could even move into a conversation about the theoretical tenets of Islam, because one of the basic things we learned from Islam, as we were taught by the Prophet, is that he who knows himself knows his Lord. So a person has to have the knowledge of himself before they can even start to learn about the faith of Islam properly. So again, you know, we can go on and on, and uh, part of our really understanding the history uh, of Islam in America is that we have to understand, you know, the history, the development, and evolution of not just the nation of Islam, but even the community of Imam Muhammad, as I would say that both of those communities are one community that are just different branches of the tree of the nation of Islam and of, of the Arabalized Muhammad. Right, and I was just about to go into that, but before I do, it's imp- I think it's important to note uh, Professor James Small, uh, who used to be an imam, uh, he's a noted African historian, but he used to be an imam of Muslim Mosque Incorporated that was started by Malcolm when he had left the nation of Islam. Uh, Professor Small said that when he made Hajj, he said that some of the Muslims over there had asked him, how was Haji Muhammad doing, speaking about the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. So I think, yes, that, you know, I think there's something to note. But concerning uh, you mentioning the community of Imam W.D. Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, uh, 
course, under the leadership of Minister Louis Farrakhan, for the past several years, you have actually tried to assist in the further unification of the two communities. How has that been going? It's been going, brother. I was one of those. I would, I would actually say, brother, that other than the uh, the birth of my children and the continued good health of my parents, that that process you outlined has been one of the high points of my life over the past years, particularly over the past uh, three to four years. That process is going good and it's going to continue because uh, those of us that are involved in this process of the unification of our communities, and certainly Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan has taken the lead on this, continuing the pledge that he and Imam Muhammad made years ago to work together until Allah called them back. And now we know that Imam Muhammad has been called back to Allah, but the minister is still here doing the work on the ground. And those of us that support that work, uh, my dear brother, student minister Carlos, and certainly uh, our dear brother, Imam Sultan Rahman Muhammad, the national imam of the nation of Islam, you know, we work together, we consult with each other as we're supposed to do as Muslims, and we're going to do and we're going to continue to keep our commitment to do everything that we can to help uh, our people's perception and understanding of Islam in America and to help the minister uh, do this work of continuing to uh, you know, bring our people to a broad understanding of Islam and support those things that have already been happening over the years. Now, how many places have you been traveling uh, regarding uh, this subject, African-American Muslim history, because you've traveled extensively? Uh, my brother, so I probably lost count of the cities. We've probably been in most other major cities, and we're still going to continue to travel. And I have to say this, you know, you still have set certain segments of our community, but I just have to be honest, that don't want to see this unity happen, because sadly, you have many people on, from both branches of the tree that still want to hold on to old issues, even issues that Imam Muhammad and the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan has said that they were going to move beyond and work. You still have the followers on both sides that unfortunately still want to hold on to those issues. But the mercy of Allah has made it prevail that those of us that are really involved on the ground and doing that work, you know, we don't get bogged down in those issues and we, com we continue to keep our eye on the prize, which is to, you know, work together and, you know, try to get this thing done. So the travel has been extensive. And it's going to continue, and uh, I don't want to be premature until we get a few things finalized, but soon we're going to be announcing uh, um, a major uh, program that's going to come up that's going to be part of the uh, Nation of Islam, Islam Islamic Sciences program that Imam Sultan Muhammad is spearheading, and Student uh, Minister Carlos and I, along with others, are going to help him toward that end. Now, often I've heard of... Coming up, I've heard Imam Muhammad and Minister Farrakhan both uh, reference a popular quote of the Prophet Muhammad saying that uh, you will know the day of judgment once the sun begins to rise in the West. Uh, I've heard both of them say that that is actually referencing uh, the community of Muslims in America, specifically African-American Muslims. Do you agree with that, or can you uh, uh, elaborate on that, if I heard, if I, if I heard them correctly? No, you definitely heard them correctly, and I certainly agree with that. And we see it reflected uh, in our work and in the response to our work around the world. I remember when Allah blessed me to go to visit uh, Kenya, East Africa, uh, wow, 15 years ago now, and in, in uh, September 2000. And I remember vividly one of the conversations I had with uh, some of the elders in one of the, uh, one of the villages in the cities I visited. And one of the things that they left me with, they said that 
we over here are waiting for the Muslims in America to get it together because once you get it all together, that sets the that sets the stage for the rest of the world. So the light My of person. Islam is shining. So the light of Islam is shining bright in the West, and we just have to continue to step up and just own the responsibility that we have and to own our place, not just in history, but even in this moment. And then we'll be able to be successful and continuing to shine that light. And we don't have to look to the quote-unquote Muslim land or the majority Muslim land for our leadership and our guidance, because if you look at it, we have uh, more going for ourselves than what's happening in many of those places that are in disarray right now. And even with the secular fighting that's going on over there, you look at the years that Imam Muhammad was doing his work and our minister Louis Farrakhan was doing his work, you don't have one documented incidence of violence between those two communities. And we can't say that about Islam and the rest of the world. Now, you know, uh, of course, uh, I mean, uh, just last week we, we read about, we heard about what took place in Kenya. I believe it was Kenya uh, concerning yes, the, the 147 uh, students that were massacred, and it was stated that it was done by al-Shabaab, which is supposed to be, a, as they say, a Muslim extremist group, and that they separated the Christians from the Muslims, and if you were a Christian, they killed you. If you were Muslim, they let you live. When you and I last spoke on this show, I asked you and the other guests uh, to speak about uh, the African-American Muslim perspective on what is referred to as Islamic terrorism. How would you respond to those, specifically uh, many people such as the likes of Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity and even Bill Maher, like I said, you have conservatives and liberals who say that uh, Muslims, that moderate Muslims are not doing enough to speak against Islamic terrorism. You get back to us uh, right after the commercial break. Yeah, well, this issue of... Uh, right, after, right, the, right after the commercial break. Right after the commercial break, I mean. Okay. Don't I mean. Yes, sir. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For live programming schedules, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Welcome back to Let's Build. I'm Dashaun Farad. On this segment, we're speaking with Ibam Amin Nathari, who is an author and lecturer of African-American Muslim history. We were supposed to be joined tonight also by Nation of Islam National Archivist Student Minister Carlos Muhammad on this subject. Uh, go ahead, brother. I mean, we were speaking about uh, moderate Muslims, as they are popularly referred to, speaking against what is referred to as Muslim terrorism. Go ahead. Exactly. Well, first of all, we as Muslims, we know that this issue of terrorism has no basis in the Quran or in the life tradition of the Prophet Muhammad, present peace be upon him. And it's really uh, just uh, a distortion or an outgrowth of the secular violence that's happening in these other countries. So what I don't want to see happen is I don't want to see Muslims in America start to become apologetic for things that are happening in the other part of the world. We have to defend what Islam really is about by our actions. And I think that our actions and by the American public continuing to be engaged and informed by Muslims and by the American public and our neighbors being able to see the work that Islam is doing on the ground, I think that that's going to do more to dispel this, uh, this misconception of Islamic extremism more than any talking or whatever. And it really surprises me. What well, doesn't surprise me, it really kind of irritates me when uh, the likes of the Bill Mars, and there's others like him, there's a bunch of them, that will always want to have the Muslims take this uh, defensive position, and it's always the argument about the Muslims aren't saying enough. But yet when things happen and atrocities happen 
uh, by the hands of those people that profess other faiths, like Christianity or what have you, or to see the situation that's happened over in Palestine, and the people of the Jewish faith are involved in some things, you never expect them to just make blanket condemnations about everything that has to do with their faiths. So I think that it's unfair for the Muslims in America to be held to that standard when that standard isn't used as a litmus test for other faith traditions. So we just want to continue to do the work, and I think that for the most of us, our people will attest that, okay, well, we know the work that our mosque and the community has done. We know the work that the Muslims are doing. So most of our people aren't informed about Islam, by what happens on Fox News or any place else. They're informed by their relationships with Muslims in real life. Now, uh, I mean, have you uh, done any lecturing concerning the uh, the African American Muslim presence during slavery? Not particularly. That's not uh, one of my areas of expertise. Although, I mean, I've read it and studied it. I don't particularly lecture a lot about it. There's a lot of people that are involved in that particular space. Uh, Dr. Sylvian Diouf, our dear brother, uh, um, the international representative of the Nation of Islam, Brother Akbar Muhammad. You know, you have people that lecture about that and are well-versed in that specifically. So what I try to tend to focus on is our contemporary history of Islam in America because I think that that is paid too little attention. And I'm really concerned that if we don't continue to own and represent and document that history, that a time is going to come where people are going to try to rewrite history and make it appear that Islam in America began in the early 80s on someone's college campus. And I can't allow that to happen. So uh, what, I, what I want to know uh, concerning that, we've already discussed uh, places where you have traveled. Okay, have your audiences, the audiences that you have spoken to, have they just been primarily African-American audiences? No, definitely not. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed with, the, with the, uh, the unique ability that I'm probably able to access more, uh, even more immigrant places you know, than many of our representatives, you know, as I would call us servant leaders. I've been blessed that I can just as well be in a black American mosque this Friday and the next week be in a mosque that might be primarily run uh, by immigrants. And I think that the message that, you know, that we, that we're, uh, with, that we come with is something that resonates beyond cultures and beyond ethnicities. It's just that lately, over the past few years, I'm trying to spend even more time engaged with my own people because I find that for the most part that it's the black American Muslim community that's behind, you know, uh, in terms of our development and our growth. And I'm sad to say that as much progress as we're making within the what we would call the mainstream tradition of Islam and black America, that if you go to a particular city, and there's immigrants in that city, and there's black Muslims in that city. The black Muslims are always lagging behind or in last place. And it's not because we don't know anything Islamically. It's because oftentimes we haven't owned our history and, and the contribution that we've made. So we tend to just lag behind and let other people own a narrative. And that has to change, and that's part of the effort that uh, Student Minister Carlos and I are involved in, both with the archives and with the 40 and Forward program so that we can put the history in some context and not just live the history but to build upon what it is that we've seen happen over the past 40 years. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned 40 and Forward because I was just about to ask you about the program that you're scheduled to have on April 11th, 40 and Forward, Islam in Black America. Now, why are you having a program specifically focused on Black America? 
rather than say to the broader uh, broader uh, American community? Why why the focus? Uh, why 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 is this your focus audience? Because my view is a twofold view. One, we need to give specificity because most of the narrative that happens in the modern media today focuses on Islam and it excludes the Black American contribution. If you look at any of the media networks, normal, uh, usually you don't find there's not many Black American Muslims that are even called upon, but in irregularity, they represent the Muslims. There's usually immigrants and other people, you know, from other ethnicities that are involved in that dialogue. And we're not being we're not being called to the table to represent, and it's not as if we don't have people that have the you know, the scholarly ability to represent Islam. That's one thing. And the second thing is that I would argue, Brother Deshaun, that after the departure of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad in February 1975, that that period that began after 75, both with the transition that was led by Imam Muhammad, and then the rebuilding of the Nation of Islam that began in uh, late 77 by Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. That 40-year period from 1975 to now, 2015, is probably one of the most critical and crucial points in the development of Islam in America. And people need to understand that. And this is why we gave the subtitle to the program where we called it uh, Examining the Past, Assessing the Present, and Building or Looking Toward the Future. Because we have to look at those three aspects of the past 40 years in order to be able to really come up with a, a, a real blueprint on how we're going to continue to protect, you know, uh, our history and our legacy forward and to build upon that. So that's the intent of the program, and it's going to kick off in Delaware, but we're going to be moving throughout all of the cities in America, at least all of the major cities and some of the not major cities. And in each city, we'll have a local speaker who will give the history of Islam in black America in that particular city, and then we'll have at least two national speakers that will deal with the other aspects in each of those programs. So the first one is this Saturday in Del- Wilmington, Delaware, beautiful center that's uh, that's uh, part of our community, Muslim Center of Wilmington, Masjid Kalsar, led by an imam who was a soldier in the nation of Islam. He was a captain in Delaware back in the late 50s and the 60s, who's still holding wow. Masjid down now. So we have a, we just have such an abundance of history and we need to showcase that, and we don't need to run away from it. We need to celebrate it, not for the sake of nostalgia, but for the sake of being able to own that history and draw from the best practices of it, and then to build and keep moving forward. Can you please give the the address of the place as well as the website? Yes, sir. The address the event, is... Uh, and the time, the, the date address, and time, please. Yes, sir. The address uh, was first of the date and time, Saturday, April 11th, starting at 12 noon. And we and, and we go, and we're going to start 12 noon promptly. We're not going to do the other people's time, as we often call it. We're going to start at 12 noon promptly, as close to 12 noon as possible. Saturday, April 11th, at the Muslim Center of Wilmington, which is at 2102 Northeast Boulevard in Wilmington, Delaware. If you're coming by train, the train station is literally five minutes away from the center. You know, essentially located. It's a beautiful place. And we hope to have a beautiful day. There's going to be a cross-section of the community that's going to be with us. Our brothers and sisters from Muhammad Mosque Number 35 in Delaware, many of them are going to be joining us. Most of them are going to be coming from Philly, South Jersey, and it's, and it's early it's attended is coming from the mighty believers of Muhammad Mosque Number 6 in Baltimore. So we'd like to have a beautiful day, and we're looking forward to the presentations by Abdullah Muhammad, the historian from Delaware, our dear sister Nisa Islam Muhammad, who's a journalist and a writer for The Final Call and other publications, 
and certainly a presentation by my friend and brother, student minister, Carlos Mohammed, the Archive for the Nation of Islam. Now, since uh, a student minister, Carlos, was not able to join us tonight, I wanted to ask both of you this question, but I'm going to ask you, you know, I have no choice but to ask you this question. Yes, sir. Uh, once again, we were speaking about the negative view that many people have of, say, the Nation of Islam. Many Muslims have the Nation of Islam. If you would, have you gotten any criticism from Muslims who are anti-Nation of Islam for your work with the Nation of Islam? Oh, oh, yes, sir. I take it. I get it all. I get it regularly. I, I'm used to it, and I wear it as a badge of honor because I've I've come to learn over the now 20 years that I've been doing this work full time. You know, brother, you were with us when we established the mosque in Tucson in 1995. So it's yes. been 20 years now since I've been doing this work full time. And when you're getting, being criticized, it's normally when you know you're on to something. When people stop stop talking about what you're doing, then that usually means that you're irrelevant. But I get it all the time because, as I mentioned before, brother, people want to hold grudges and hold on to issues that have already been resolved, and they lose sight of the bigger picture. So the bigger picture for me is the unity of the Muslims and doing what we can to work collectively to better the condition of our people. So I don't even deal with the criticism, and I'm able to just stay focused. And the more criticism that I hear, I just try to tune it out. But I would also say that I, do, I get just as much encouragement of people who will call and write me and tell me that they see what we're doing and that they love it and support it and they're wishing us success. And those are the people now, that, I'm, that I'm concerned about. Now, with the many social problems affecting the African community, the black-on-black -black violence and the uh, fatherless homes, will this program on April 11th have any plan that will benefit the broader African-American community and not just the Muslim community? Absolutely, which is why we're inviting all of our guests and neighbors to come too, because we believe, you know, and this is part of the great work of the Nation of Islam on the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and this is part of understanding the broad expression of Islam when we don't limit it to just the theoretical things or the, or the spiritual aspects of it, that Islam is to benefit all people. So when we present in programs and forums like this, we're trying to present Islam in a way where all of the people can benefit from it, regardless of what their faith perspective may be. So this is just going to be uh, one of any programs that's going to be uh, happening, that's going to hopefully further our civic engagement and hopefully make Islam more relevant in the black community outside of the mosque, because the mosque is really just a place for us to convene and to have our to fill our spiritual responsibility, but it's not a place that we're supposed to get stuck in, sitting just listening to khutbahs or sermons that don't have any relevance to what's happening in the lives of people. So we're trying to reformulate now and in practice in Islam in 21st century America that not just is authentic, but that also addresses the goals, needs, hopes, and aspirations of the people in the communities that we live in and serve in. Okay. Well, we'd like to thank you for joining us. I'm Ian Nathari and Zaid Muhammad. That's our show for tonight. Please join us next week. As always, I'm Dashaan Farad. Thank you for building with us. See you next time.
it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.